This is David Ocker, author of Creating Signature Stories, Strategic Messaging that Energizes, Persuades, and Inspires. And you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, which was named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer. My goal for this podcast is to help you discover new ideas about what's actually working in the quickly changing field of modern marketing and sales. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since you are a listener to the Marketing Book Podcast, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or some other helpful resource that I know of for whatever situation you find yourself in, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat and I'll try to point you in the right direction. And now, on with the show. Today, we welcome David Ocker to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about his new book, Creating Signature Stories, Strategic Messaging that energizes, persuades, and inspires. David Ocker is a professor emeritus at the Haas School of Business, University of California at Berkeley, is the vice chairman of Profit, and is the creator of the Ocker Model, and he's published more than 100 articles and 17 books that have sold well over 1 million copies and been translated into 18 languages, including his recent book, Ocker on Branding, 20 Principles that Drive Success. And prior to that book, he authored Brand Relevance, Making Competitors Irrelevant, which was cited by Advertising Age as being among the 10 marketing books you should have read and was named one of the top three marketing books of that year by Strategy and Business. And interesting fact, he was profiled by California Magazine and called the Plato and Newton of Branding. David, congratulations on creating Signature Stories, and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Oh, thank you. Glad to be here, Doug. So we first got connected. Uh, You were referred by none other than Philip Kotler, father of modern marketing, who's been on the podcast twice, and I was very excited because I'd first heard of you about 25 years ago. I was working in New York at the J. Walter Thompson ad agency, and I was the account executive on Listerine. And one day I noticed on the client's desk a copy of, I think, your first book, Managing Brand Equity. That was my first branding book. Okay. This was the early 90s. So right away I was was quite excited. Now, there's a kind of a running joke with some authors on this, and close listeners will uh, will know about this. There have been more authors with Stanford degrees than any other school on the podcast, I think about ten percent. And so I, you went, you did your undergrad at MIT, but then you got your master's in, uh, and your PhD at, at Stanford. So I like to say that by marketing podcast law, I am required to interview you. <laughs> so and and your your daughter Jennifer is a professor at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. I understand. Yeah, she actually got her PhD there and is now a professor in the business school. Yeah, and I noticed uh, she's. Amongst other things, she's the co-author of The Dragonfly Effect, Quick, Effective, and Powerful Ways to Use Social Media to Drive Social Change. So uh, that was a few years back. If she's working on any other books, I, I really hope she'll, she'll let me know. Yeah, she's, uh, she's not 
she doesn't find book writing fun. <laughs> I've heard it's not too much fun for for uh, most of these authors, which is why I have such admiration for for people that do write them. So I mentioned the Ocker model, and I was wondering if you could just briefly introduce that to the folks, the listeners who uh, are not familiar with it. Yeah, I got um, into branding because I was uh, doing some writing and teaching and business strategy, and and I sort of decided that people were too uh, focused on short-term financials, and they needed to step back and build assets. And then I decided on uh, the asset I should work on to help in, in move people in this direction was brands for, for a lot of reasons, having to do with my background and interests. So I wrote this uh, first book, Managing Brand Equity, kind of defined brand equity, which was just an emerging concept and term then. And it was reflective of a sort of uh, a need of companies to move on from short-term price promotions, from from cost reductions, to try to find growth, real growth, and that it led them to brands, and that led them to brand equity, but nobody had defined it. So I defined it in my book, Managing Brand Equity, and that really uh, hit a chord, and people uh, sort of then kind of came to me and said, well, okay, how do we do that? You know, the given that that's what brand equity and it's important and so on, how do we actually go about building it? So that led me to my uh, second branding book called Building Strong Brands. And in that book, I uh, created what I call the brand identity model and others have called the Ocker model. But it's based on a simple premise. And that is that the uh, people in marketing, especially in ad agencies and and uh, don't take this personally, Douglas. But, but uh, I can't people, wait. Uh, yeah, they they thought focused on a brand was was all about a single thought, a three word phrase, and that was what branding was all about. And and you generated the three word phrase, and then you generated an advertising and promotional campaign around that three word phrase, and you just and you just pounded it home. It uh, your mouth's in your mouth instead of your hand, and and all those. Uh, mm-hmm great ideas. But it to me, that just so misses the point because brands are not a three-word phrase. They're multidimensional, especially when you get into service brands and durables and so on. But even packaged goods, it's more than a three-word phrase. So my, my premise of my model, and, and which is still alive and at profit in a lot of other places too, but one of the basic ideas is brand is multidimensional. So you have from 6, 10, 12 dimensions of a brand. So when you ask, what does your brand stand for? You come up with 6 to 12 dimensions. You don't come up with a three-word phrase. Mm -hmm. And then you prioritize those into the ones that are the most important, which are the core, and they drive the most important brand enhancement programs. And then the others are the extended identity. And the extended identity plays a key role because they provide texture to the thing. They provide guidance as to what's on brand and what's not brand. And a lot of times the extended identity uh, over time moves into the core. And sometimes it becomes the most differentiating part of the core. So, you know, that's really a, a basic premise of the model. And now since then, we've, uh, and, and actually in, in, in my first book, Building Strong Brands, I didn't even have a brand essence. I was so, you know, so important to me to get away from the single uh, phrase. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. But in, in the subsequent book, Brand Leadership, we extended the model to have a brand essence. And we said it's optional, but sometimes it really works. If it if it clicks, then then that's fine. Let's have a brand essence. But uh, I, I find in about half the cases, people try to force a brand essence where it doesn't fit, doesn't add, and it just distracts. Mm-hmm. And uh, But anyway... And the, the second pillar of the model was, and again, uh, use the ad agencies as a well, whipping boy, but they as, as the, you uh, should, as I should. But anyway, they would, a lot of these had these these uh, fill in the box models. They would have uh, uh, six boxes, you know, brand personality is one box, uh, organizational values is another box, uh, functional benefits, uh, emotional benefits, so you know, self-expressive. They'd have all these boxes. So every brand would have to fill in every box. And a lot of the boxes didn't apply to the brand. Mm-hmm. And and actually, some of these models were designed because all their clients were packaged goods. And they would omit things that were really important to a service brand. And, and there was no box for the most important thing you want your brand to stand for. Yeah. So the other premise of mine is there's no prearranged boxes. Every brand creates its own box. You say, what do you want your brand to stand for? And then you are free to put in whatever is important to you. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, not only am I not offended, but having gone through and lived there and uh, been in that world, I uh, I agree. And there was just, I also think that there's still just deep misunderstanding and, and ignorance about brands. And I, what particularly gets me upset is there seems to be a lot of charlatans and they just, it's whatever they say it is. And as a result, over 160 interviews on this podcast, I think I've only had two books that have to do with brands and branding because uh, sometimes it just gets me kind of fired up that uh, there's a lot of BS, I think. <laughs> Maybe you found that as well. Well, there's a lot of branding books that have good insights, but very few that sort of uh, can capture a, you know, the big picture. Mm-hmm. And, um, mm-hmm. Well, let me open with two excerpts from the book, and then I want to get into uh, storytelling and signature stories. So uh, at the beginning of chapter four, you have a Jewish teaching story, which is absolutely fantastic and appropriate for this book. And it goes like this. Truth, naked and cold, had been turned away from every door in the village. Her nakedness frightened the people. When Parable found her, she was huddled in a corner, shivering and hungry. Taking pity on her, Parable gathered her up and took her home. There she dressed truth in story, warmed her, and sent her out again. Clothed in story, truth knocked again at the door and was readily welcomed into people's houses. They invited her to eat at their table and warm herself by the fire. And then on page six, you say, this book shows how to apply the power of storytelling to strategic messaging in the age of social media, and it explains why storytelling is so helpful and often necessary in making your message come alive. So before we get to a discussion of signature stories, let's talk about briefly about storytelling as a, a business verb. It seems like storytelling, at least that term in the business world, is, is still very misunderstood. Explain what is meant by storytelling. Well, I was really intrigued by stories because of Jennifer's work and uh, 
and I had many discussions with her, and, and I really got into it because I thought this could be applied to the strategic brand building messaging challenges we have. And, um, you know, in this day and age when there's disinterested and, and skeptical audience members, there's, the, there's social media with the audience in control, there's uh, media uh, clutter and so on. It's, it's, it's tough. And I thought, God, we can use these stories in this context. And I got exposed to all this psychological literature that, it, it was, that indicated that stories were so powerful. So so powerful in creating attention, at persuading, and inspiring, and getting action, and and so forth. That you know we got to be able to use this. And so, um, but I, I was blocked by a a question that just we couldn't answer, and that is, what is not a story? Because every time we would you know go down this path, then there was some example of what people called a story would appear that didn't apply to all this psychological research. Mm -hmm. And if, for example, you ask people, what's your brand story? And what they will tell you is, you know, what the brand stands for, what are the targets, what's the value proposition, what's the point of difference, a, a set of facts. Mm -hmm. And so finally, we decided that a facts are not a story. A list of facts is not a story. And that was just a breakthrough for me conceptually, because now I could uh, marry the power of the psychological research to the communication task and make it clear that in this world of, of signature stories of my book, that uh, we're not talking about facts. We're talking about a narrative that describes a real or fictitious event or experience. It's a once upon a time kind of thing. And uh, so anyway, that, that was really an important breakthrough. Mm -hmm. Okay, so Dr. Rector, what then is a signature story? Well, first of all, a story is not facts. It's this narrative, as I explained. So a signature story is, a, uh, is first of all, a powerful story. It's not I just got up and brushed my teeth kind of thing. It's, it's intriguing. It's authentic. It's involving, and it's a narrative, and it uh, communicates directly or indirectly a strategic message. That means something like the organizational values, the organizational culture, the business strategy, the customer value proposition, something that you want to have as an enduring association of your brand. Mm -hmm. So you talk about the difference between tactical and strategic messaging. Can you explain that? Yeah, well, so what we're talking about is strategic messaging, and, and a tactical thing would be the use of a story to, to sort of make a point in an advertisement or to do something short-term that's not intended to be enduring. Mm -hmm. It's just supposed to help you send a message at, at that time. So a, a strategic thing is is an association that you want to build over a long time period. Okay. The biases that you've encountered towards organizations using storytelling, let's say, versus their, their, their inclination to want to use facts. Well, let me, before we do that, can I just interject an example or two? Oh, please, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, let's take, uh, for example, um, there was a... Uh, 
a person that was promoted to a CEO position of an appliance manufacturer in China, 1986 kind of thing. And uh, that company was since been renamed Hyair. But um, at that time, it was a struggling, almost failing company. And as soon as this guy, Zhang was his first name, as soon as he became CEO, a, a customer came in with a defective refrigerator. They went to the stock to find a replacement, and he he was stunned to find that 20% of those refrigerators were defective. And he took all of that 20% into the factory floor, and he had his employees smash them with a sledgehammer. And that was sending a signal to them and indeed to the whole marketplace that this company was no longer going to make defective stuff. It was going to really make quality an imperative. Mm-hmm. And, and they did that. Now, you, you, you know, try to compare telling people that we're now a quality company, we've got quality programs, da-da-da, with the vision of these guys with sledgehammers destroying their inventory. Mm-hmm. And that that story, that image, you know, that exists to this day. They got a sledgehammer in their home office and and uh, that's a symbol of what is a big part of that company now, mm-hmm. which incidentally is, I think, the largest appliance manufacturer in the world. Mm. Can you also share the Nordstrom tire story? Yeah, that's another classic. The, in in the 1970s, there was a person that had been on the job only two weeks at Nordstrom store in Anchorage, Alaska, and somebody came in with two tires that were worn. And he said, you know, these need to, you need to replace them because I'm not satisfied. And uh, Nordstrom has never sold tires, although uh, some, a tire company did exist on their store site uh, years before that. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there was no doubt what this guy was going to do. He took back the tires and gave his money back. And and this is a true story. And, you know, when I talk about to uh, audiences in California, especially, I ask them, who's heard of the, the Nordstrom, this Nordstrom story? And something like, you know, 40 percent of the audience usually raise their hands. I mean, this story hasn't been repeated by Nordstrom's, I don't think, ever. And here it's gotten out there and people have heard about it because it's so authentic, so compelling, so intriguing. It's just so believable because Nordstrom's backs up the essence of the story, which is they have empowered employees, they're concerned with the customers, and they have a remarkable guarantee. Mm -hmm. So what about companies that don't think they have a story or maybe a startup? What happens if you don't have a signature story? Well, that's a good question because it's not so easy to uh, to create really strong signature stories, and um, you really have to have a process in place where you're sensitive to the emergence of a potentially strong signature story, and then you you uh, you would grab it when it occurs, and you try to massage it and make it uh, make the presentation strong. And then leverage it, and um, if it requires, first of all, a conviction that stories are important, mm-hmm. that stories are powerful, and then it requires a uh, a culture and a process to to make that happen. Mm-hmm. There's another a peculiar side of the other side of that same coin. Really, is that 
it, some companies w- which do get success in going along those lines generate too many stories. Like uh, my company, Profit, has stories, uh, client stories, and we now have 70, 80, 100 of them. And so now, now you've got another problem. How do you deal with those stories? Because you just as story overload, people get overwhelmed. So then you have to have a way to have some lead stories. You have to have a way to have a story bank that allows you to identify the right story for the right context and uh, uh, so that you don't get overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. Nice problem to have, but it was interesting where you talked about uh, how some companies have so many and what, how, what they're doing to catalog them and make them available uh, to everyone. So... Just to go back to what we touched on earlier, what, what is the pushback that companies have towards exploring this? Is it a lack of understanding of what storytelling is, or is there something else why they, they just want to s- communicate facts rather than try to find stories? Their instinct is that communicating facts is so efficient. I mean, you know, go back to the old advertising days of the 80s and 70s, you would have advertising objectives, right? You would have, you want to communicate some functional benefits or maybe emotional benefits. And then the most efficient way to do that is to make a list of uh, a set of facts. And uh, we call them proof points or something back then. And so then you would you know, write ads or or do other things to communicate those facts. Mm -hmm. And stories are inefficient because they're communicating those same facts, but indirectly. And they probably communicate only a subset of those facts. So they're very inefficient. And second of all, it's not so easy to find stories that do that well. Mm-hmm. And so um, it's hard when, I mean, every, everybody knows when you pull it off, it's magic, but it's not so easy to pull off. Yes, and I think that uh, in reading the book, I gained a, it was a great refresher and, and educator on the power of these stories. It really is more like uh, if you do it right, you're getting lightning in a bottle. There was one passage that made me laugh after getting a reminder of how powerful stories are, and I think how rare they are. You said uh, on page uh, 58, The alternative communication path is to present facts that lead to logical thinking in the active evaluation of an argument. As noted in Chapter 1, this model is attractive to marketers, especially those in the high-tech or B2B sectors, because it assumes audience members who are motivated to process relevant information, focus on functional benefits, and make rational decisions. Why would anyone not be responsive to a clear presentation of compelling facts? (laughs) I just, yeah, it's quite I, amazing. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, it, it, one of the most astounding, you know, findings in psychological research is that facts don't just don't matter. Facts don't change opinions, especially if they're strongly held. It's called confirmation bias, mm, yes. and of course, we see this in the today's political space. People uh, read to and expose themselves to information that confirm what they already think, and they ignore or or stay away from or distort information that's inconsistent with their beliefs. Yeah. I heard it on the news yesterday. I heard confirmation bias being talked about by some political analysts. Interesting. Yeah. So that applies here, too. And and uh, and so it's not that, you know, people are rational and they will think. Let me tell you a story about Barclays Bank. Barclays Bank was a, 
you know, we went through the 2008 uh, debacle and they were blamed for the distorting interest rates, the LIBOR thing. And, and at one point, Barclays was actually the least trusted bank in the least trusted industry in the world. And uh, so how do you do that? Well, you could provide a set of facts saying that, you know, we've changed our procedures, we've gotten religion, we da-da-da. We're great. And, yeah, we're great. And they tried that, actually. Didn't budge the needle at all. Mm-hmm. And then they decided to change their, their purpose, and they created a new purpose called helping people achieve their ambitions in the right way. And they liberated their whole workforce, 170,000 people, to develop programs around this new purpose. And they about 40 per, uh, programs emerged, four of which were around a group called the Digital Eagles, which is a group of 17 employees, grew to 17,000, that were engaged in helping people thrive in the new digital world. And then Barclays told stories around this uh, activity, one of which was featured Steve Rich, a sports development operator, who lost his ability to play football, soccer to Americans, because of a car accident, but he could play walking football, which was usually played with six to a team on a small field, but no running. So with the Digital Eagles help, he developed a a website that connected 400 such teams in the UK. He connected people to those teams. He uh, orchestrated a national tournament. He got uh, celebrity soccer players involved. And uh, he really, you know, created a, a movement in UK. And he provided a lot of meaning for a lot of people, including himself. And that was one of the stories. And there was other stories like it. They were emotional. They had meaning. And, you know, when you hear a story like that, you don't counter-argue. Mm, yes, big you're, point you're in not, the book. You're, yeah. you're not skeptical. You're not uh, ignoring it. You're not turning it aside. You're not engaging in confirmation bias because it's just a story. Mm-hmm. So, so the story breaks through. And, and then you digest this story and you think to your, you know, think to yourself either consciously or subconsciously, Barclay's not all bad. They're, they're not as evil as I thought. Um, they're not just out for, for to make more money and no matter what it takes ethically. And, uh, and so trust and, and a lot, a whole host of other measures bounced up. 35 to 50 percent. Hmm. And uh, and again, the, the fact-based program that went preceded that may, didn't move the needle at all. Yes, there's a, a line in the book that I, I, I circled a couple times. It's, facts alone neither communicate nor persuade. <laughs> so one thing that came to mind, and particularly as you were talking about General Electric, GE in, in your book, it brought to mind another company, uh, Raytheon, where they went off and hired six journalists, one of them a Pulitzer Prize winner, and said, go forth into our big company and tell interesting stories. In other words, if somebody says they want you to pitch their product, don't do it. Don't do it unless it's an interesting story that would have interested you as a newspaper or magazine editor. Can you talk a bit about what else GE has done? It seems like they've really got this to a science. Well, yeah, they've, Linda Boff is their uh, CMO now, and 
I think she's had a, a brilliant campaign to create stories in all different kinds of contexts. And one of the things that, that she has done is to um, allow the stories to percolate in, in all kinds of different contexts and allow them to be presented in the way that best suits that story. Yeah, so I think cumulatively she's done a you know a really interesting work and is and is a good role model for a lot of companies. Mm-hmm. One other question I wanted to ask you that was covered in the book is to explain the concept of the higher purpose and why that's so integral for signature stories. Well, um, let me give you another story. Unilever's Lifebuoy brand is a major brand in in southeastern Asia and India. And in India, they started a a Lifebuoy program called Help a Child Reach Five. And it was based on the fact that a very disheartening percentage of children don't reach five in India because they they get sick and die, often of dysentery and water-related things. And and so Lifebuoy did a study to find that if they could wash their hands more regularly and more effectively, they could avoid that that uh, fate. And so they had this program. They went into schools. They uh, helped people learn how to wash their hands and so forth. And they, they went into three communities where the program uh, was established, and they created a video about those communities. And in one video, a woman named Utari was uh, shown guarding a tree and watering it and shooing water buffalo away from it. And that night, uh, we learned that her boy is going to have his fifth birth year birthday the next day, and he was one of the lucky ones that did reach five. Very emotional, very involving, uh, and well-executed advertisement. These three ads for Lifebuoy got 44 million views. I mean, we're talking bar soap. Mm -hmm. They got 44 million views. Now, just think of the energy, the visibility, and and the brand enhancement that that resulted in. And you, you you couldn't. There's no amount of advertising budget that would generate any a fraction of that kind of impact. Mm-hmm. And it's so often the case. If you are uh, in almost all cases, your product, you know, communication is not going to not going to do much. And in and if you have a higher purpose. It can uh, liberate you to create stories that will make a difference. Mm-hmm. And there's also the, the fact that a higher purpose now is, is really important for employees. They want meaning in their job, especially millennials. And companies that don't have a higher purpose have a trouble hiring people, have trouble keeping people. And customers also, at least a, a significant part of them, are really interested in uh, – in having an association with companies they admire and respect. Mm-hmm. And they they uh, will, uh, at least a certain portion of them, will overtly o- avoid customers that they don't respect and they don't admire. Yes, yes. And, and a higher purpose is related to that. So in case the listener wasn't paying attention, I asked our guest a question. He answered with a story. See. 
We're on to you, Dr. Acker. I saw what you did there. Very effective. So if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? Well, as I, uh, you know, it, it really gets to a fundamental understanding that stories are more impactful than facts in terms of getting attention, persuading, inspiring, and, and being remembered, and so on. And we're not talking about 20% more, 30% more. We're talking about 200% more, 300% more. It's, it's astounding, the difference. And I think that the, uh, the book talks about how you develop stories and how you leverage stories and why stories are good. But I think that the most important motivation is to accept the fact that stories are so powerful. And memorable and persuasive. In fact, I think there was one study, and I can't find it here, but there was, a, I think it was graduate students, where they were testing memory based on having facts presented to them versus put in story. And it was like 5% remembered the facts and 60-something percent remembered, remembered story, the story. That's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that was Chip Heath at Stanford that did oh, that. that's right. That's right. Yeah. So what books have inspired your work and career? Well, um, I, I think that uh, a, a book that I really have, have liked and I go back to a lot is Lou Gerstner's a biography, and it's uh, was that about the elephants dancing? Yeah, yes, the el- yeah, making an elephant dance. Or I'll, something I'll find like the that. link to it, and we'll put it in your show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. But I remember thinking about that because you mentioned him in your book. Yeah, he walked into a situation where a company was was just about to be destroyed. And uh, he, he turned it around with, uh, he, he dealt with another subject I'm interested in, that's a silo problem, organizational silos. He dealt with that. He, he went to the customer and he had a customer-driven strategy. And uh, he, he just, it, it was really, uh, really marvelous. And, and so many lessons for uh for branding and uh, organizational management and strategy in in that book, I think. Mm-hmm. The book uh, title I, I, is uh, Who Says Elephants Can't Dance from 2003. Yes, yes. Let's see, uh, another book that... Uh, I, there's a lot of books that have to do with, uh, with psychology that I started reading in graduate school that got me into the whole idea of persuasion, which I think is, is really, um, it's a fascinating topic. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, you, you get things like confirmation bias and you get all this behavioral economic stuff of, of Thaler and, and Kahneman and Tversky and so on that, that indicate that the, uh, the economic model assumptions is just not, not right. Yes, and I think I read that your daughter Jennifer studied under Daniel Kahneman at, at Berkeley. He, well, he did. That's right. Uh, she did. She was an undergraduate at, at Berkeley, yeah. So are there any recent or upcoming books that you've heard about or uh, looking forward to seeing? I like the uh, the book four that was written by a former colleague of mine, Scott Galloway. It hasn't. Um, it's only indirectly related to brand, but it talks about the the power of uh, Google and Facebook and Amazon, and uh, and and how they got there, and and what are the problems that they have uh, their power 
has has uh, generated. And the fourth one was Apple, mm. and that was that's an intriguing book, I think. Yeah, I think I think I have heard about that, and we'll make sure to include a link to that on on your show notes as well. I've got some things to do here after this uh, <laughs> after this interview. That sounds like a great one. So, Doctor Ocker, how best can listeners learn more about you and your new book? Well, I blog regularly on davidocker.com, and uh, there's going to be actually a series of six blogs that are going to be introduced in the next month that will summarize some of the key ideas of the book. So that's one way. And of course, if you Google me, you get more information than you may want. Right, including a, a Wikipedia page. So that's David Ocker, A-A-K-E-R.com. And I see that it redirects to a section of the the Profit website. But just remember David Ocker, and we'll include a link to uh, that in in your show notes. The name of the book is Creating Signature Stories, Strategic Messaging that Energizes, Persuades, and Inspires. The author is David Ocker. David, thank you very much for being on the Marketing Book Podcast. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. And that closes the book on episode 160 of the Marketing Book Podcast. For more, check out this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or other helpful resource, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat, and I'll try to point you in the right direction. My name again is Douglas Burdett. Hey, do you know what a great conversation starter is? Well, I'll tell you. Ask your friends and colleagues what podcast they listen to. And if you think they might like the Marketing Book Podcast, please tell them about it. And please join us next time as we welcome soon you to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about his new book, Iconic Advantage. Don't chase the new, innovate the old. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Marketing Book Podcast.